This is Chris. Welcome to episode 365 of X-Lapsed, which, uh, yeah, I guess it's kind of a milestone if we're looking to celebrate anything and everything. Uh, this is 365 episodes, so pretty much you could listen to an episode of this every single day for a year and not have a repeat. Unless, of course, it's leap year, but maybe we'll celebrate, uh, we'll celebrate that milestone next episode. And I think uh, even Audacity, the program that I uh, record into, is celebrating today because, uh, hey, we got a uh, an Audacity update, which rendered me sitting here at my table for like 15 minutes while my computer just tried to decide what to do with it. I feel like Audacity is a... Uh, they're updating a lot. I don't know. Hopefully they're, you know, um, these are big and needed improvements, but it's starting to feel like... A, Anytime I open up the Chrome browser and it's like, update available, it's like, I just updated you yesterday. Well, what's going on here? I know I've only been back behind the mic for a little bit, but I swear this is the fourth time I've had to update Audacity. Maybe, maybe I'm doing it wrong. Who knows? I suppose that's probably a silly and somewhat precious thing to, I don't want to say complain about, but, you know, complain about. But uh, let's uh, push that all away here because we're, we're set. I am recording into Audacity, at least as far as I can tell. So uh, we are, we're in a functioning state. With all that said, how about we hop into today's book, which is a doozy. It's a pretty good one. It's actually a really good one. Um, so long as you uh, don't like really, really think on it or overthink it like I tend to do. But uh, we'll, we'll get into that as we uh, make our way through uh, X-Men Red, Volume 2, Number 3, which had an August 2022 cover date. The story's called Loss, written by Al Ewing with art by Stefano Caselli. Colors, Federico Blee and Protobunkers, Fernando Cifuentes. Letters, VCs, Ariana Marr. Designs, Muller with Bowen. Edits, Amaro White-Sobolski. Cover price, four bucks. This one went on sale June 15 of 2022. And we open at the hatchery in Arba Magna with Cable being resurrected. And if I'm being completely honest, I barely remember the fact that he had died again. I'm sure he's died many, many times since uh, this era, but... I don't remember it. Um, now, here we see we see four stages of his life, and I'm guessing this is us being shown that his memories are being downloaded or whatevered from Cerebro into the uh, the new gold bald body. Now we see him as Baby Cable, we see him as Kid Cable, as Lifeldian Cable, and as a skeletal Cable when he was uh, vaporized. Maybe that was last issue. Maybe it was one before. I don't remember. Now he confirms that his made-to-order bits were uh, honored. You know. I think it was a Quentin Quire info page over in, I don't even know if it was a recent issue of X-Force, but it was an issue of X-Force, I'm pretty sure, where it went through like his laundry list of uh, specifications that he uh, wanted the five to oblige to and uh, 
put in this new husk uh, every time he died, because he died several hundred times in like a two-month span. And we saw things mostly superficial, because uh, uh, Quentin's kind of a funny haha. so it was like he wanted, you know, less hair follicles or more hair follicles, or he wanted his eyes fixed but still wanted to wear glasses, because glasses are a fashion statement, which, as someone who can't count his own fingers without his glasses on, is kind of annoying, but, I mean, Quentin's quite, kind of annoying dude. Um, anyway, Cable, he had some specifications here. He wanted his T.O. virus intact as well as a stealth arm, which uh, Hope gives the big thumbs up. He's got them both. And I don't remember exactly where we learned it. I think I think it might have been going back as far as the Cable Deadpool, like, buddy team-up series from uh, uh, Fabian Niciesa at the, what was that, like 2007, 2008-ish? I think we found out there that if Cable's virus went away, he'd become too uh, powerful. Like, the virus is the only thing keeping his powers at bay, so... Without the virus, he would basically not be able to contain himself. He would just basically burn out. And I want to say that's, uh, you know, the fate that befell uh, Nate Gray, X-Man, back in the uh, Counter-X days here. I think a lot of the X-Man lore was that he was constantly in battle with his powers, like kind of holding them at bay uh, mentally. So heavily focused on it, whereas Cable didn't have to worry about that because he has the virus. Might be mistaken on some of the finer details there. It's been a long, long time since I read a 90s book, but uh, I think that's about the size of it. In any event, he's got the virus, so he's good, and he's also got this stealth arm. More on that in just a moment. Now, Thunderbird, the newly, semi-newly resurrected Thunderbird, he lumbers in, and he informs Nate that, uh, well, they gotta talk. Um, Now, they've got a bit of a contentious relationship, these two, and Cable excuses himself to go and have that chat. Now, Xavier, he appears to be a bit concerned about how well Proudstar is fitting in. He's uh, definitely being portrayed as something of a fish out of water or a man out of time, which it's one of those things that, you know, when we think about it, it's like, yeah, it makes sense. But when we think deeper and start, you know, uh, evoking thoughts of the sliding timescale of the Marvel Universe, it gets a bit more nebulous, a little bit more, well, the sliding timescale gets slippery since... It ain't like he's really been on ice for a half century, right? It, it might have been, I don't know, five years? <laughs> you know, I don't know how long it's been, so... I don't know how much of a man at the time he truly is at this point, but uh, we'll, we'll allow it. Anyway, Nate and John, they head off to have that secret chat. Now, Cable, he reveals that he's using his new stealth arm to uh, block any telepathic attempts at listening in. And he's also hollow-casting. It's, uh, he's using something to cast a deep-faked argument between the two of them, just in case anybody does manage to slip through his defenses and tries to eavesdrop. So, what he's using is the War of Words they exchanged during the fracas at the Red Lagoon, which might have been last issue, might have been the first issue. I I probably should have checked. I'm sorry I didn't. But uh, it happened within the past two issues. (laughs) I mean, we're only on the third issue, so it had to have. In any event, if anybody manages to listen in That's what they're seeing here. They don't know the secret chat here. And now, if I'm reading this right, it seems as though it's kind of being hinted at here that the argument at the Red Lagoon was all an act just to get this hollow footage. I might be wrong there, but Cable seems to think so. (laughs) Cable seems to think it was all, you know, an act. But John assures Cable that he meant every single word he said, all the contentious stuff, all the nasty stuff. 
He goes on to mention how Cable, as well as Emma Frost, had uh, used his brother James, or Jimmy Warpath, in the past. Which I suppose, I mean, if we squint, it's true enough. Uh, with Emma, uh, actually, you know, James was uh, really, I, I guess I guess used is a, is a decent word for it, since... At least in the Hellions case, uh, James wasn't in his, you know, clear mind here. He was definitely fueled by vengeance, very much holding um, John's death against Xavier and the X-Men. That's something we saw brought to light in a backup from uh, Classic X-Men. It was very, very early in Classic X-Men, within the first five issues of it. Um, if you're not familiar with Classic X-Men, and I'm, I'm assuming... <laughs> Anybody listening knows what Classic X-Men or X-Men Classic was. It was a reprint series. It was an affordable way to read these, uh, you know, classic new X-Men stories. And since it was the mid to late 80s, uh, this is before everything was collected in trade. It was before everything was kind of made to order and you could find anything you want online. There was really no online the way we know it back then. So if you wanted to read those stories without breaking the bank, this was a good way to do it. And for the first 44 issues of Classic X-Men, they would include a, an all-new backup story, which fleshes out, you know, sometimes fleshed out the, the feature story, sometimes filled in some blanks. Sometimes it was just a, you know, a, a throwaway, you know, character-focused, day-in-the-life sort of story. They were a lot of fun, and um, I know the crossover between podcast listener and blog reader, I know that Venn diagram is uh, <laughs> it's very sparse in the middle. But if anybody's interested in hearing all about those backup stories, or if you're learning that those existed for the first time right now, if you go over to Chris's on Infinite Earths, there is a 45-part series wherein you can get my commentary without my annoying voice. It's called X-Men Vignettes, and it covers those 44 backup stories from the first 44 issues of Classic X-Men, as well as a story from Marvel Fanfare, which was supposed to appear in Classic X-Men number 45 before they changed the format and just decided not to do backup stories anymore. So, 45-part series there. You can uh, maybe kill an afternoon or two if you're interested in checking that out. A lot of uh, fun stories, a lot of frustrating stories. It's it's a uh, little bit of a... It's a very mild roller coaster ride. It's nothing extreme, nothing that's going to make your hair go on fire. It's just uh, in-continuity stories that you may or may not have known ever existed. So, uh... Where in the hell was I? Oh yeah, there, there's a Proud Star one early on at the front, and that's, uh... Yeah, I wasn't expecting that tangent there. I actually do have a plug for X-Men vignettes, I just wasn't planning on doing it just yet. We'll get there, let's keep going. So what are Nate and John talking about? Well, you see, they both seem to know that Abigail Brand is up to no good. And they're soon joined by Manifold, who clearly shares that opinion. From here, double-page spread of roll call and cred, which I realize I forgot to do last issue, or last episode, for the uh, that Wolverine chase scene. I forgot to do the roll call. I don't know how I forgot to do that. Uh, maybe I could have added another 15 seconds to that episode. I don't know. Anyway, today we got Storm, Magneto, Sunspot, Thunderbird, Vulcan, Brand, Cable, Manifold, the Fisher King, and Tarn the Uncaring. We hop over from here to an info page, sorta. It's an announcement that Vulcan will be challenging Tarn the Uncaring at the Circle Perilous for the Great Ring Seat of Loss. And of course we found out, I believe during the Sword series, that at any point in time, anybody on Arako or in or who's presently on Arako can challenge a member of the Great Ring for their seat in battle. Yeah, it's just something that they do. They're a very warlike people, whereas on Krakoa it's more of a 
pseudo democracy. It's, it, I mean, it's not really a democracy. It's a, I don't know. It's a top-heavy bureaucracy. I don't. It's not the same. <laughs> All we know is that Araco is different in that at any time someone can challenge you for your seat, and you're obliged to um, enter into pretty much battle to the death or battle to forfeit or submission. I guess. From here, we go back to comics, and we're at Sword Station 2, colon, The Keep. Storm is here chatting up Abby Brand, and she asks about Vulcan challenging Tarn, which she thinks this is a pretty bad idea. And she warns that Tarn can kill Vulcan with but a single thought. Now, Abigail seems to be playing this as using a member of her group of X-Men. Remember, she has her little group, Storm has the Brotherhood, uh, and using Vulcan to get a bit of influence for her group on Arako. At least, that's what I'm getting out of this. Now, they also talk about how the Shi'ar currently refuse to acknowledge Vulcan's existence, or the fact that he'd never actually died, which we found out during that uh, Empire tie-in issue from the old Hickman run. Now, this, of course, means that uh, Vulcan has some sort of a nebulous claim to the Shi'ar throne. Unfortunately for him, and for us, uh, the little bird girl who's boring the bejesus out of us in Marauders is currently occupying it. Info page. Uh, Mentolo checks in with Abigail Brand here. He says that he scanned Vulcan's mind, and he found that weird personality that the aliens gave him back in that same Empire tie-in issue of X-Men that, uh, for dorks like me, uh, is most notable for having screwed up so much of Hickman's delicate continuity. Uh, he also says that he can train Vulcan to better use his powers, which we might just see in practice during the big fight portion in this very issue. First, let's hop over to the Autumn Palace. Now, this is where the Brotherhood, which is Magneto, Sunspot, Storm, and the Fissure King, they're having a chat about future moves and the upcoming Tarn-Vulcan bout. Bobby attempts to goad Magneto into challenging Tarn for the Seat of Loss, but Mags ain't having none of it. Storm recalls having bested Tarn herself over in the Circle Perilous, which, if you recall, I believe this was an issue of Sword. Um, she did beat him, but she refused to kill him and she refused to take his seat. She says that taking that seat would have lessened her, and I don't know if that's a play on words because it's, you know, the seat of loss or whatever, but, um, I mean, in any event here, how many votes does Aurora need? She's already got two for the uh, Great Ring, doesn't she? So I don't know what a third would do. And again, they do make sure to uh, remind us that she did beat him. She got him to yield in battle, but she refused to actually kill him. So uh, might be some foreshadowing or a call ahead. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, now, Magneto, you know, in talking about whether or not he would ever challenge Tarn, he says he's got no moral quandary about, you know, killing Tarn. You know, removing Tarn from existence is what I believe he says. He just doesn't think it's right to set another Krakoan in an Iraqi position of authority. Now, he says to do so would, like, remove any sort of differences between their group and Brand's group. You know, that their, their group is more about securing power and, you know, positions of power, whereas the Brotherhood are being positioned as kind of the, you know, the voice of the people in a way. At least that's what I remember from that, like, artist colony thing that happened last issue or the one before that. Now, he goes on to talk a little bit more about having built a nation with Xavier. He then mentions, for some reason, that his daughter Wanda built their heaven in the waiting room gimmick that we saw in the Trial of Magneto, whatever the last issue of that was, five? I think maybe five? 
Anyway, maybe he says this simply to remind us that the rules of resurrection are different now? I don't know. Anyway, he mentions how children and people whose mutant powers never actually activated can now be brought back via these means. And we already know that the baby that Northstar adopted way back in the long ago is among those that are being brought back. Uh, Magneto recalls his first child, Anya, and how she tragically died in a fire, um, but can never be brought back because she didn't have the mutant gene. And this is where I was going to uh, do my little X-Men vignettes <laughs> plug here, since that was a story that took place in classic X-Men number 12. The story, uh, I think that was the first and one of the very, very few appearances of Anya, which was a very, very powerful story. It was written by Claremont, and um, he, he really pulled out all the stops in the uh, backup stories featuring Magneto, really fleshed him out. Um, I suppose it could be argued that maybe he added a few too many shades of gray for some folks, but, uh, it made him, it moved him into the realm of redeemable, is, is kind of the, uh, the thrust here, and, um, very, very good story. And again, if you are interested in checking that out, um, you could head over to Chris's on Infinite Earths and take a look at the X-Men vignettes, uh, series. Also, these are all available digitally on Marvel Unlimited. All you got to do is find the classic X-Men issue. And I'm pretty sure if you were to pull them up that way, all you're going to find are the backup stories, which is, is a pretty neat way to, to go through them, uh, if, you're, if you're interested, of course. Anyway, Magneto, he's still talking about Anya. He begins to cry, and he says he no longer has the heart for anything like nations, councils, or utopias. Now, Berto says he doesn't believe him, and then he refers to him as Headmaster which is a callback to that weird time when Magneto was leading the original New Mutants before losing his damn mind again. From here, we time and scene shift. We jump ahead to Sunset, and we're at the Circle Perilous. Tarn the Uncaring and Vulcan are about to square up. Roberto takes his seat in the crowd next to Iska the Unbeaten and proceeds to chatter up a little bit. Elsewhere in the crowd, Storm sidles up next to Cora of the Burning Heart, who I barely remember at all. Now, Storm invites her to join the Brotherhood. Korra says she misses feeling useful, to which, uh, yeah, I can, I'm familiar with that sensation as well. Aura Serata, that giant eyeball thing that we're seeing over in Legion of X, rings the bell and our bout begins. Vulcan delivers the opening salvo, siphoning Tarn's energy before he can engage his own mutant weapon. And, of course, Tarn's mutant weapon is genomic control, so basically power stealing. So, Vulcan acted first, so... The power thief Tarn had his powers thieved by Vulcan. As the battle rages, we check back in with Berto and Iska, and Berto clarifies that Iska can, in fact, never lose, which she confirms. That is her whole gimmick, right? Now he says that, uh, well, you know what? We have something in common. I can't lose either, even when I do. Hmm. That's a confusing statement, right? But it will make a ton of sense very soon, unless we stop to really think about it, in which case it will make zero sense, but we'll get there. Now, in the circle, Tarn is beating the tar out of Vulcan, breaking his bones, busting his face. It's a real slobanaka. And after a couple of pages of clubberin', Tarn has beaten Vulcan to death. Tarn has stood triumphant, and he basically starts goading the crowd. He's like, hey, who wants a piece of me? You know, he calls for anybody in the crowd, anybody in the universe, to challenge him for a seat. To which, Magneto finally answers the call. Roberto smiles, he turns to Iska, and he bets her that Tarn will win. Hmm. Retro. 
Now, Iska instantly knows she's been used, and that, well, she'll naturally win this bet, which means Magneto will beat Tarn. She grabs Sunspot by the throat and snaps his neck. Storm rushes over to settle the tea kettles, and Iska explains that she'd been had, and she expresses that this is not the way things ought to go down. And she might be right. Then again, I mean, she didn't exactly accept the bet, did she? Can you, can you have a wager willed on you? We'll put a pin in that for now. We'll come back to it uh, on the other side. Um, now, in the circle, Magneto and Tarn notice the commotion going on in the stands. Aura Serrata tells him not to worry about it and to proceed you know, with the pummeling. To which, Magneto slams his helmet down over Tarn's head and then squishes it. It's worth noting here that Tarn actually begs for mercy before being killed. We wrap up with Magneto proclaiming that he now sits in the seat of loss. And that's where we end it. Next episode, we're going to talk about Immortal X-Men number three. But for now, well, uh, we got a little bit to talk about, don't we? Before going into details, um, I gotta say I loved this issue. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was a lot of fun. The characterization here was was wonderful. The art was great. It, uh, to be completely honest, it was shocking how engaged I was with this issue. Uh, with how I've been receiving a lot of the current year stuff, uh, I was not expecting it. I mean, it's Al Ewing, wonderfully talented guy, so maybe I should have expected it, but um, maybe it's a case of once bitten, twice shy with these current year X books where I'm just uh, going in, you know, with a, a, I don't know if it's a chip on my shoulder or just a little bit of cynicism, so... It was nice and refreshing to have my expectations subverted this way. But, well, uh, if we think deeper on this, which I, I hate to do because that ruins everything, doesn't it? I mean, I walked away from this issue thinking like, wow, this was just, uh, you know, the bee's knees here. Such fun, such great characterization. And then I stopped to think about it, which, you know, you, you start peeling layers back and you get the magnifying glass out. And that just, well, that just kind of ruins the fun. And I guess I am, you know, the no-fun-allowed robot here. So uh, let's take a look a little bit deeper here. My main takeaway for this issue might be obvious. It's Berto's bet. The bet he made or willed onto Iska. And the question I have is, does this work? Does this actually do anything? And I mean, when you first read it, it's definitely clever, right? It's like almost mind-blowingly clever. And it's fun. It's a fun wrinkle. But is this how Iska's powers ought to work? Like I said during our little spoilery synopsis, she never said, you're on, you know, or you got it. Let I'll take that bet. She never said that. She never technically accepted the bet, at least not out loud. Maybe mentally she's like, yeah, I got that bet, but she didn't share that with, uh, with the audience. She didn't share that with him. So outside of putting like a little seed of doubt in her mind about the limitations of her powers, I don't know what this does. Because if this were the case, that Berto just says, hey, I bet you this, and she has no choice on whether or not to take the bet, that makes her even more overpowered, doesn't it? Like, to the point where she could be the only character we, we need. Because if that were the case, couldn't Xavier just meet up with her and say, hey, I bet you the X-Men lose. And then it would be like, and they all lived happily ever after the end. We're, we're, we're done here. Also, it gets kind of dicey if we were to, like, jump back to X of Swords, right? 
then we had uh, we had Betsy and Iska fighting in the first round or, or the first bout in X of Swords. What would have happened if Betsy bet Iska that Iska herself would win a battle? Does that mean that Iska would have to lose the battle to win the bet? Or does she lose the bet and win the battle? Or does it start raining frogs and all the time and space ceases to be? I, I just don't know. I, I should probably stop thinking about this, otherwise I might change my mind on the issue. It's one of the uh, biggest problems when you fancy yourself a fake-ass analyst, <laughs> where uh, you just you just can't enjoy stuff the same way anymore. You just can't just have a story. You can't have a story told to you. You have to think and think and think and think, and it just ruins it. I think we could have subverted this whole thing by having Iska just like flip Bobby off when he uh, when he tried making this bet. Now let's take the Iskaness out of the uh, out of the equation here. Does Roberto making this bet does it take away from Magneto's victory? And I mean Magneto, well he ain't no pushover by any stretch, right? Using his helmet in order to hinder Tarn's mental hoodoo, then crushing it is a pretty solid attack plan. And I'd like to think that he would have done this even had the bet never been made. And again, we don't have any confirmation on whether or not the bet did anything, since Iska didn't accept it, and Magneto's a powerful dude. I don't know if this was just maybe, you know, the first breadcrumb in a trail of breadcrumbs that we're going to explore Iska's powers a little bit more, and maybe she's not quite as limitlessly powerful as she seems at first blush. Maybe this is just putting seeds of doubt in her own mind, or seeds, seeds of reality, I guess. Uh, the realization that she can be something of a walking contradiction, or her powers can be... Is dissonant the right word here? I don't know. But uh, it, it's just there, there are some peculiarities... Pe- how do you say that word? Peculiarities <laughs> about her powers, where there may be more or less... Than uh, we thought at first blush So if that's the way they're going You know, I'm all in If if they are suggesting that her powers Somehow cause Tarn to lose the battle Then, uh, well, I'll, you know I'm, I got faith in Ewing So I'm, I'm more than willing to You know, sit for an explanation And see how it plays out But um, I'm not gonna lie It's always gonna kind of be in the back of my head Until we hear otherwise But uh, what else, what else We got a few reversey deaths here Which... I tell you, I've been away from these books for, you know, six months now. And uh, there were some things I missed about the books, but one of the things I really didn't miss was the overuse of uh, thrill kills. You know, um, we got Roberto, Vulcan, and Tarn all dead here. And not a one of them carried any weight. You know, I have very little doubt that they'll all be back very, very soon. Uh, Tarn, I guess there's an asterisk there, because I don't remember if the Iraqis have, like, foregone resurrection. Is that a thing? I could have sworn that it was, but I don't remember. In any event, though, I'm willing to bet that they will all be back in some form or fashion before we know it. Anyway, with all that said, I'm pretty sure that's all I have to say about this issue. And despite the fact that I kind of poked holes, or I tried to poke holes um, for the past couple minutes, I very much enjoyed this issue, and uh, honestly can't wait for the next one. So, and I mean... I think I'm looking over at my short box of current year X stuff, and uh, I'm pretty sure I've got like seven more issues of uh, X-Men Red to cover. So I'm definitely looking forward to seeing how this story plays out, and I hope you are as well. Not only that, I would love to hear your thoughts on this issue and the other issues we've discussed here. And, And I understand we're in a weird spot where 
I mean, you know stuff that I don't, very possibly. If you're reading ahead or if you're current with the X-Books, well, then you know how this plays out. So um, it might be a little bit hard to discuss these issues in a vacuum, and I totally understand and appreciate that. But, of course, the invitation to engagement still stands. You can find me all the same places as always, Chris on InfiniteEarth.com, uh, WeirdComicsHistory, Gmail.com, Ace Comics on Twitter, we um. Not Weird Comics History, uh, chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Oh boy, I'm all over the map here. And, uh, of course, X-Lapsed on Facebook, unless I already said that. Anyway, I'm clearly becoming delirious, so it's probably time to stop talking. <laughs> but first, I definitely want to thank you all so much for allowing me into your ears for a little while today, and, uh, for upwards of 365 <laughs> days, uh, an entire year's worth of X-Lapsed. How about that? Um, so thanks again so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.